0: In July 1469, Edward IV, who had been king for eight years, faced his first serious challenge since 1464. This time it came not from the Lancastrians, but from those closest to him, his chief noble ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, and the heir-presumptive, Edward's own brother, George, Duke of Clarence. We have already seen... That both Warwick and Clarence were discontented, in my view with limited justification, but then my perspective is rather different from theirs. The trouble began in the north, where there was at least one and probably several different revolts in the spring and summer of 1469. We know little of any of these revolts, but what we do know is that the Earl of Warwick was deliberately orchestrating one of them the one led by a shadowy figure known as Robin of Reedsdale, who was more than likely one of Warwick's leading northern retainers. In mid-July, Warwick, having seen his elder daughter Isabel married to the Duke of Clarence in Calais, arrived back in England and hurried to join up with a large rebel army which had swept southwards into the Midlands. King Edward was at Nottingham tried to raise an army to join with two recently elevated Yorkists, William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, and Humphrey Stafford, Earl of Devon. But Edward would not reach his allies in time, and the combined efforts of these two earls would be required if they were to halt the rebel advance until the king could arrive with reinforcements. Unfortunately, on the eve of battle, Herbert and Stafford both rather stubborn, bullish men, managed to fall out spectacularly. Herbert was left to face the rebels alone on the 26th of July at the Battle of Edgecote near Banbury in Oxfordshire. Stafford sulked nearby with an army of several thousand archers and only decided to go to Herbert's aid when it was already too late. The fighting at Edgecote was fierce and many of Herbert's Welshmen were slaughtered. Even so, the rebel victory was only achieved when Warwick's vanguard arrived to compensate for the rebels' own heavy losses. William Herbert and his brother Richard were captured and immediately executed by Warwick. The Herberts were not the only ones to feel the earl's wrath. The Queen's father, Richard Woodville, Earl Rivers, and her brother John were also captured and executed. There had, of course, been executions before, but it's worth bearing in mind that none of these men had broken any law and had only taken up arms to support their lawful king. Warwick's summary action, based not on any legal authority, but on jealousy and malice, was to set a dark precedent. Edward, deserted by some of his own men, then sent away his brother-in-law Anthony Woodville, who was very likely to be executed like his father if he was caught. Edward then surrendered to George Neville, who took him first to Warwick Castle and later to the great northern Neville stronghold of Middleham. His younger brother, Richard of Gloucester, and his close advisor, William Hastings, were allowed to leave unharmed. Warwick, in the belief that he was now firmly in control, summoned a Parliament, presumably to give their approval for his actions, because, of course, he was only acting for the common good. But he would also need Parliament to sanction the elevation of Clarence over his older brother. By the middle of August 1469, Warwick appeared to be in command of both the King and the Kingdom. In the blink of an eye, it seemed. The king had been deposed, but in fact he had not. Warwick has often been described as the kingmaker, and surely he must have intended to make Clarence king. Surely that must have been Warwick's intention from the moment he plotted with Clarence. He must have promised him the throne. Otherwise, what was the point of suggesting in the rebel manifesto that a king who had failed, such as Edward, should be deposed? Yet, in the summer of 1469, George, Duke of Clarence, did not become king. Why not? Well, we don't really know. Did Warwick's closer association with Clarence convince him that the king's flawed brother was not the answer? He seemed instead to want to try to rule through Edward as a sort of puppet king. Now, anyone who had the first idea about Edward IV's character could have told Warwick he was making a big mistake. Edward was intelligent, capable of conceding ground when circumstances did not favour him, but also able to seize the initiative when his moment came. Very soon, it didn't matter what Warwick thought anyway, because his apparent control was shown to be an utter illusion. The great groundswell of support he had expected just did not materialise. Though Warwick had some popular support in the north, hardly any of the ruling classes supported his coup. He was almost completely isolated amongst the nobility and on the King's Council. Without their support, Parliament would be reluctant to take any extreme action, such as crowning Clarence when his older brother, was still alive and well in Middleham Castle. Plans for a parliament were quickly shelved amid governmental chaos and a new Lancastrian rising. It did not help Warwick that there was even more disorder after he took over than before. Local feuds abounded and the earl could offer no answer without the authority of a king. Ironically, It was the new Lancastrian Rising in the north which revealed Warwick's weakness, for when he summoned men to suppress the revolt, he was basically ignored. He was thus forced to release Edward so that troops could be mustered to suppress the Lancastrian Rising, and thus restore confidence in the government. By September, Edward was in York acting independently, and by October... He was back in London in the bosom of his allies. Publicly, he declared his goodwill to both Clarence and Warwick, but no one was fooled. The King did not punish Warwick, but he was unlikely to forget the Earl's savage execution of his rivals, especially since two of them were members of the Queen's own family. Edward began to limit Neville power and influence whilst allowing them to retain some pride. Men such as Edward's youngest brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, Thomas Lord Stanley and Henry Percy, newly restored to his earldom of Northumberland, were given more influence at Neville expense. Edward hoped for reconciliation but did not expect it. His brother George might perhaps be forgiven, but not the Earl of Warwick. But was Warwick right in his accusations against Edward? Had Edward failed to rule effectively? There were certainly some complaints about lawlessness, but the way things deteriorated when Warwick assumed control could not have given those with grievances a great deal of comfort. And were Warwick's rivals, in particular the Woodvilles, unusually rapacious in their appetite for wealth and power? I would suggest probably not, by 1469 at least. Certainly they were not as well established at the centre of power as they would be ten years later. And Elizabeth Woodville had yet to provide the king with a male heir. What Edward was doing in the late 1460s Was trying to balance the power of his original supporters, such as Warwick, with some new men whose advancement would depend upon Edward himself. Men like William Herbert and Humphrey Stafford, who Warwick had so savagely cut down, were supposed to provide Edward, along with the Woodvilles and his own brothers, with a new and broader power base for his kingship. Taken together with his clear preference for accommodating rather than executing his erstwhile opponents. I see this as a sensible policy which encouraged unity rather than division. I think it would have been very successful had it not been for the Earl of Warwick's outrageous ambition. Why do I say outrageous? Because Warwick was not a man stripped of power by Edward. He was constantly showered with rewards by this king. Even after his failed coup, of 1469. Yet it was not enough for Warwick. He wanted to be the guiding hand, the supreme counsellor to the king. Well, it might have worked with Henry VI, but Edward IV? Seriously? You begin to wonder whether Warwick knew this young man at all. It was only Warwick's naked ambition which destabilised Edward's regime. Over the winter of 1469 to 70, the Earl chewed over his failure. True, he had achieved the marriage he intended and had removed a few of his rivals, but at the cost of utterly destroying his relationship with King Edward. His position in the state was now extremely perilous, and if anything, his potential enemies were more numerous and hostile than ever before. The Woodville's were certainly not going to forget what he had done. Even so, as long as the king had no son, Clarence remained as heir presumptive, and Edward could not look forward to an easy acceptance of his rule. Though Warwick did not appear ready to crown his son-in-law in 1469, Clarence was still the only real alternative to Edward that Warwick had. But unless Edward was actually deposed, Clarence was not likely to replace him. To do that, Warwick would need to engineer another crisis, but this time he must outmanoeuvre the king and bring a powerful force against him in the field, for the king had to be seen to be defeated if he was to be deposed.